Good morning. Good morning, CBC and anybody else who may be tuning in to our live stream this morning. This is the 11th Sunday that we have not had a normal gathering. And I know I'm excited, as I trust many of you are, for the prospect of being able to meet together, uh, albeit outdoors, beginning two weeks from today on Sunday, June 7. I know I can speak for, for the elders of CBC. We're grateful for your prayers, for us, for wisdom and guidance uh, in these unprecedented times and uh, in light of all the difficult decisions that we have to make. And we thank you for your understanding and dealing kindly with us. And thank you, too, for, for a number of the kind emails that I've received even in the latter part of this week. Um, thankful for our leadership and encouraging us in the task. Uh, those things mean a lot to, to me and to us, so thank you for that. There are a number of things to consider whenever we're trying to make decisions like we are in these days about when to have gatherings again and how to go about doing those. As most who are watching this probably know, our plan is to begin outdoor services two weeks from today on, on June the 7th. And the reason for that decision, uh, or the reasons for that decision are many, uh, but suffice it to summarize it this way, it seems to be the best and safest way for us to gather uh, the entire church is to do it outdoors beginning June 7th. And in addition, our situation is complicated by the fact that we do not own our own building. We meet in a YMCA, and that YMCA is still closed as of right now under the phase two reopening situation in North Carolina. And even once the YMCA is open, there are going to be a number of things that we have to consider before we begin having large gatherings inside that space. And some of those things will be dictated to us uh, by, by not only the state, but even by the YMCA and other, other entities. And so continue to pray for us as leaders and continue to pray for the church as we um, enter into this reopening phase. And as we resume a search for a larger space to meet in, there's all kinds of things on the horizon for CBC. So continue to pray, continue to um, be involved as you as you are. Continue to give to support the ministry of the church so that we can go about pursuing good things like a space to meet in. We are today in the third of a series of meditations called Encounters with Jesus. And as you guys know, these are accounts from the Gospels, not from the Gospel of Mark, because we recently made our way through that Gospel as a church these meditations are on passages of uh, interchanges with Jesus between Christ and various groups of people. Some of them are parables of Christ. Some of them are teachings of Christ. Some of them well-known, some of them not so much. Today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them there uh, or find that passage on, on a Bible app if that's how you're looking at the Scripture today. Again, John 3, 1 through 15 is going to be our text for this morning. Before we get to uh, our text for today, I just want to make a few comments on the distinction between law and gospel in Scripture. It's going to be relevant for what we're considering today. We talk about this stuff a decent amount as a church, but it's never bad, just by way of reminder, to consider them again. Whenever we are told things that we must do in Scripture, in particular things that we must do in order to have eternal life, that is law. Whenever we are told what Jesus has done for us in our place, that is gospel. The message of the law is one of do this and you will live. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has done it. He has done everything that is required of you. Now live in him by faith. In a law economy, we achieve righteousness through what we do. 
And in a gospel economy, we receive righteousness through faith in Christ and what he has done. Now, this is important for us today and anytime, frankly, when we encounter the, the teachings of Christ, the words of Christ in the gospels, because very often when Jesus is asked about eternal life, and in particular, when he is asked about how to have it, how to inherit it, he often responds with law. Typically, this is because he is speaking with people who think they can achieve righteousness on their own, and he means to, in one sense, dump the full weight of the law on their consciences. We considered a number of passages in Mark's gospel that were like that when we made our way through that book. But in our passage today, in John chapter 3, Jesus is going to give a man named Nicodemus gospel. And the gospel is going to blow the mind of this Pharisee. And so let me pray for us briefly before we read God's word and consider it together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in need of your help by your spirit, as we always are when we look to your word. And so we pray for that. We pray that even over this medium, you would use your word to accomplish the work that you mean for it to accomplish. We pray for your spirit to illumine your word for us as we look to it this morning. We pray that we would see the gospel, that we would see the good news of Jesus Christ, and that you, by your spirit's work in us, would sustain, confirm, and strengthen faith in Christ. And we pray for those who may be watching this who have not yet trusted Christ for their salvation, that you, by your spirit, would make that happen for many even today. And so we pray for these things to happen because you are good, you are gracious, you are merciful, and you are faithful to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, let's now read the passage together. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So let's consider the text together now, friends. Let's put our eyes on verse 1. We see there in verse 1 that we are introduced to a man named Nicodemus. He was of the Pharisees, we are told, a ruler of the Jews. We considered the Pharisees last week from Luke chapter 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
And for now, suffice it to say that the Pharisees were experts on the law and were proponents of strict adherence to the law, along with other rules and regulations that they had placed around it, that hedge that they had placed around the law. So Nicodemus, a Pharisee, were introduced to him in verse 1. In verse 2, we see that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Presumably, he didn't want a bunch of people to know that he was going to meet with Jesus. Jesus was, of course, a pretty controversial figure, especially amongst the Pharisees. He begins, Nicodemus does, with these words, Rabbi, teacher, we know, we know, talking about himself and the other Pharisees, presumably, that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And in verse 3, Jesus responds. It sort of feels like Jesus interjects, maybe not interrupts him, that's too strong, but certainly interjects. He's going to redirect the conversation, and as Christ always does, he's going to go straight to the heart of the matter. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 4, Nicodemus responds essentially with like, um, excuse me, what? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus, what are you talking about, man? And then in verses 5 to 8, Jesus is going to answer him. He's going to explain further what he's talking about. Let's look at verses 5 to 8. I'm going to read them for us again, and we'll consider Christ's answer, his response here. Jesus answers Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So let's pull this together a little bit. In verse 3 and in verse 5, Jesus uses language of seeing the kingdom of God and of entering the kingdom of God. In all of that, he's talking quite clearly about salvation. In verse 3, what is rendered as born again, right, unless one is born again, could also be rendered as born from above. In verse 6, Jesus says that what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. All of this language sounds very much like the words of John chapter 1, the prologue to John's gospel. And in particular, it sounds similar to verses 12 and 13 of John 1, where we read, But to all who did receive him, who did receive Jesus, the incarnate word of God, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What Jesus is talking about is not a human thing. Jesus is talking about a work of God by his spirit. Let's look at verse 5 in more detail, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus talking about in verse 5, being born of water and being born of the spirit? There have been a number of different interpretations um, or takes on this verse through the history of the church. I'm going to give you mine today, and I'm not alone in this in this opinion. To me, it's pretty clear uh, what Jesus is talking about. I think Jesus has Ezekiel chapter 36 in view. In particular, Ezekiel 36 verses 25 to 27, if you want to jot those verses down. I'm going to read them for us right now. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I think 
that this is what Christ has in view in saying, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. So in Ezekiel 36, the Lord says through the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you. He's saying this to Israel, to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We're talking about this prophecy of Ezekiel about something that's going to happen in the new covenant where God is going to cleanse his people, sprinkle clean water on them, and God is going to put his very own spirit within them. Unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Consider also these verses from Titus chapter 3 as we're trying to connect all of these things together. This is Titus 3 verses 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul in those verses writes this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we were saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Don't marvel, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus here is again referencing the prophet Ezekiel, this time Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones. I'm going to read for us Ezekiel 37 verses 1 to 14. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. In that section of Ezekiel 37, it goes this way. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. 
Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you. And you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. It is the Spirit of God who gives life. The work of the Spirit is like that of the wind. You see the effects of the wind, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. So too with the work of the Spirit. You see the effects of the Spirit. They're very clear but you don't see his comings and his goings. Jesus says to Nicodemus, don't marvel at these things because they have been written of in the scriptures. Nicodemus responds in verse nine, says to Jesus, how can these things be? And then Jesus rebukes him in verse 10. You are a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. This rebuke, brothers and sisters, is further evidence that Jesus's understanding of the new birth comes from the Old Testament. He expects Nicodemus as a teacher of Israel, an expert on the scriptures, to understand these things. Not only are there prophecies concerning the new covenant that would be realized through the Messiah, there was the teaching of the Old Testament that the need of man was for God to circumcise his heart. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 30, for example. This, the Spirit, circumcising the hearts of men, the Spirit had done for all the children of promise through redemptive history. So Jesus' words to Nicodemus are an indictment on him and on the other Pharisees, for that matter, for not understanding the teaching of Scripture as it pertains to the new birth and the fulfillment of things that had been written in the Old Testament Scriptures. In verse 11, Jesus is going to continue. Remember, Nicodemus had come to Jesus in verse 2 saying, Rabbi, we know these things about you. The other Pharisees and I, we know these things. In verse 11, Jesus responds to him in a way, it's almost like, hey, bro, we know some stuff too. You, you think you know of things about me. We know some stuff. The plural, you, shows up in verse 11. Jesus is not just talking to Nicodemus in the individual second person. He is addressing him in a second person plural. That's going to be true also in verse 12. So it's clear that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and almost through Nicodemus to the other Pharisees alongside him. Jesus is going to say, we speak of what we know, but you, you and the other Pharisees, do not receive our testimony. Verse 12, Nicodemus, how are you to believe in heavenly things, if I tell them to you, because I've told you earthly things, meaning his teaching on the new birth, which is elementary, and you haven't received, you haven't believed them. In other words, if you haven't understood what I've told you about the new birth, which is an elementary thing, how could you ever understand eschatological heavenly realities about the kingdom of God? Then in verse 13, Jesus is just going to reiterate his authority to speak on these things. No one on earth has ever been in heaven except the Son of Man. And Jesus is, of course, talking about himself and referring to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus, in speaking about heaven realities, has heavenly realities, I should say, has authority to speak on them because he is the only human being who has ever actually been in heaven. Now, at this point, before we look at verses 14 and 15 and what he's going to continue to say about himself as the Son of Man, let's just pause very briefly to consider the new birth. The new birth 
to be born again, right, in, in this new covenant reality, is the fulfillment of what the prophets had written concerning the new covenant that would be accomplished through the Messiah. It is the fulfillment also of the circumcision of the heart taught in the Old Testament. And the new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. We are, as it could be rendered, born from above. It is God's work. The only reason that we are born again, brothers and sisters, is because God has done it for us. This is not something that we produced. It is not of the will of the flesh or the will of man. We are born of God. The new birth is a work of God's sovereign grace. The Holy Spirit comes to us and knocks the scales off of our eyes and gives us eyes to see. He gives us ears to hear and new hearts that are receptive to God's truth. So it's appropriate to say that the new birth through which faith comes is a miracle. Every conversion is is a miracle. It is a resurrection, spiritually speaking. We were dead and now we are alive. God has regenerated us by his Holy Spirit and that regeneration results in faith and repentance toward God in Christ Jesus. In verses 14 and 15, Now, as we look back to the text, Jesus is going to present the gospel to Nicodemus. He's going to do it simply. He's going to do it very briefly, and he's going to do it in a redemptive historical way. So Jesus goes on in verses 14 and 15 and says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, in order that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this is a reference to Numbers 21. This is so good. Numbers 21, in particular, verses 4 through 9. You can go ahead and turn there if you would like. I'm going to read these verses for us. In the context, God had just given Arad, which was a a tribe of Canaan, over to the Israelites in battle. And then we get these verses, 4 through 9 of Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is pretty epic stuff. Jesus is pointing to this event that happened in the history of Israel. And keep in mind, he's speaking to a Pharisee who would have been an expert on God's law, the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. Nicodemus would have known them well. Presumably, he would have been very familiar with this account from uh, from Numbers, where God's people are in the wilderness, and they're grumbling and they're complaining, and God sends judgment on them in the form of poisonous snakes, and many people are being bitten and are dying. And Moses intercedes for the people, and God tells Moses, craft a serpent out of bronze, out of copper, and set it on a pole and lift it up in the midst of the people. And if the people are bitten 
by a snake and they look to this serpent that you have raised, they will live. They'll be healed. And so Jesus is taking that account and is saying to Nicodemus, hey man, you remember that account of the serpents in the wilderness and everything that went on with that when Moses crafted the snake and raised it up on a pole and people looked to the snake and they were healed of their ailments and their maladies. Their lives were saved. They looked to the snake and lived. Do you remember that? That whole thing was about me. That whole thing was about how God would save his people through me. I will be lifted up on a cross. And whenever people who are cursed with sin and who are dead, who are dying, who are perishing, whenever they look to me in faith, they will live. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is so clear, understood the Old Testament scriptures to be about him. He says that explicitly in John chapter 5. He teaches that explicitly in Luke chapter 24. And he does this kind of stuff all throughout the gospel accounts where he makes it quite plain that all of these things that were written in the Old Covenant scriptures were about him. We talk a lot about understanding the Bible in a redemptive historical way with Jesus at the center. Well, we talk like that because that's how Jesus and the apostles understood the Bible. Verses 14 and 15 are very clear. It is through faith in the work of Christ that sinners have eternal life. Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, an expert on the law, a proponent of strict adherence to the law, and he's telling Nicodemus, you, you will not enter the kingdom of God through obedience to the law. You will only enter the kingdom of God if you were born again by the Spirit of God. And ultimately, you will only have eternal life if you look to the Son of Man who is lifted up. And then if there's any doubt on any of this, verse 16 of John 3 comes after verse 15. It's one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, and it reads this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. In these verses that we have considered today briefly, Jesus has blown the mind of Nicodemus, an expert on the law and a teacher of Israel. As I said just a moment ago, he is teaching Nicodemus that men do not enter the kingdom of God through obedience to the law. Rather, they enter the kingdom of God through faith in Christ by way of the new birth. Jesus has accomplished salvation for God's people. And what God's people are to do, in one sense, is to look to Christ. That is all we can do. His satisfaction for our sins, paying the penalty that we owe, for breaking God's law. His righteousness, his holiness that are applied to us by the Holy Spirit through faith. This is how we are redeemed. God saves sinners through Christ. We do not save ourselves with God's help. Salvation, as is the message of the entire scripture, salvation is of the Lord and belongs only to him. That is what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a teacher of the law, a ruler of Israel. May we all take that message to heart this morning and look to Christ who was lifted up, who gave his life, who fulfilled the law perfectly that we might be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for ourselves that as we study your word and look to your word, that we would always see Christ and your plan of redemption in it. 
And we pray that as we have considered what Jesus has said to Nicodemus, that we would not ever be deluded into thinking that we would enter the kingdom of God through our obedience to the law, but that we would always look to Jesus Christ who was lifted up, who was killed and who lived a perfect life for us that we might be saved. We pray that you would confirm and strengthen and sustain our faith in Christ today and even impart faith to those who have not yet trusted Christ this way. We pray that we would turn not only from our sin, but even from our own notions of our own virtue and trust in Christ alone. We pray for you to work this faith in us, and we pray for you to continue to conform us into the image of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, friends. It's been good to consider John chapter 3 today. I rejoice in the fact that I will only be recording one more of these things, and two weeks from today we will be, Lord willing, outside in the parking lot of the YMCA. That's 2275 Hendersonville Road in Arden for anybody watching and you're not familiar with where we meet. Everyone's invited. We will not have a, a limitation on numbers as we will be outdoors aiming to abide by all of appropriate social distancing protocol and the like. Continue to pray for us as we've got a lot of meetings, a lot of planning, a lot of preparation to do in the next two weeks to get ready for June 7. I do sincerely look forward to that day and seeing many of you for the first time in a number of weeks. I pray the Lord continues to sustain your faith and continues to be merciful and gracious to you in the meantime. Reach out to me. Uh, reach out to Ron, reach out to the staff if there's anything that we can be doing for you or particular ways we can be praying for you. And so, yeah, I'll see you again next week via this format. And in two weeks, God willing, we'll see one another face to face. It's going to be a great day. Grace and peace to you.